On April 17, 1986, peace was finally reached in one of the longest-lasting wars in history. After centuries, both parties involved in the conflict signed a peace agreement, finally bringing an end to the 335 years war between the United Kingdom and the Netherlands. Wait, what? The United Kingdom and the Netherlands? Yes, this really happened. Between 1642 and 1651, the English Civil War was fought between the Cavaliers and the Roundheads. Near the end of the war, the newly independent Dutch Republic decided that the Roundheads were most likely to triumph in the Civil War and promptly declared war on the Cavaliers. Sure enough, the Roundheads soon cornered the Cavaliers on the tiny, remote Isles of Scilly, located at the southwestern tip of Great Britain. To ensure that the Cavaliers wouldn't keep putting up a fight, the Dutch sent a fleet of ships to the Isles of Scilly to assist the Roundheads. But here's the thing. By the time the Dutch ships had reached Scilly, the Cavaliers had already surrendered to the Roundheads. This left the Dutch without any reason to stay in Scilly, so they sailed back home. The problem is, although the Cavaliers had surrendered to the Roundheads, they hadn't yet surrendered to the Dutch. For hundreds of years, everyone basically just forgot that the Isles of Scilly and the Dutch Republic were at war. In 1986, Roy Duncan, the official historian for the Isles of Scilly, discovered the original declaration of war. After investigating further, he invited Dutch Ambassador Rein Hoytekoper to sign a peace treaty ending the 335 years war. Today, this conflict is mostly just known for being extremely absurd and unnecessarily long. Perhaps even more impressive, though, is the casualty count of the war. Zero. In fact, not a single shot was fired over the course of the war. The 335 years war is one of men many bloodless wars, and I don't have enough time to talk about each one. Instead, today's topic will fall on the other end of the spectrum of the bloodiest wars in history. But if we want to talk about bloody wars, we'll need to talk about what has caused some of the bloodiest in history, religion. What constitutes a religious conflict, as opposed to an ethnic conflict, is kind of up in the air. For example, take the subject of a previous Historia Obscura episode, the Lebanese Civil War. The Lebanese Civil War is seen by many as a religious conflict between Christians and Muslims. However, it has also been cited as an ethnic conflict between groups such as Maronites and Palestinians, as well as a political conflict between Phalangists and Baathists. For the purpose of this episode, let's call any conflict, motivated at least in part by religion, a religious conflict. Let's start with a prominent example of infighting among Christian denominations, the Thirty Years' War. In 1618, war broke out between Protestant and Catholic nations throughout Europe. By the time the war ended in 1648, as many as 80 million people had been killed. In the previous century, France underwent a horrific civil war between Catholics and Huguenot Protestants. Between 1562 and 1598, as many as 4 million people were killed. Over in South Asia, the Muslim Mughal Empire and the Hindu Maratha Empire fought a series of wars between 1680 and 1707, in which almost 6 million people died. 
but not even this compares to the Dungan Revolt in China. Between 1862 and 1877, several Muslim minority groups unsuccessfully rebelled against the Qing Dynasty. In 15 years, 10 million people were killed in the fighting. And yet, the Dungan Revolt isn't even the deadliest religious conflict in history. That distinction is held by another Chinese war, oddly enough also involving the Qing Dynasty. Yet, the primary faith that spurred this conflict wasn't even a mainstream religion. It was more like a weird personal cult loosely based on Christianity. Think of the Waco siege, except with 30 million deaths. I'm going to tell you all about it right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 47th episode of this podcast, and I really hope you enjoy it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Today, China's religious situation is somewhat complicated. The People's Republic of China officially practices state atheism, but the vast majority of Chinese mainlanders practice the Han Chinese folk religion. Smaller numbers of people on the mainland practice Buddhism, as well as other folk religions like Confucianism and Taoism. If you follow current events, you might also know about the Uyghur people in China, who primarily practice Sunni Islam. In Taiwan, which may or may not be part of China, I'm not opening this can of worms, the de facto Republic of China officially guarantees religious freedom to its citizens. The two largest religions in Taiwan are Buddhism at 35% and Taoism at 33%. In both Taiwan and the mainland, the fastest growing religion is Christianity. Of the Christians in China, a majority are Protestants, primarily within the Three Self-Patriotic Movement, which is the third largest national Protestant denomination in the world, behind the Church of England and the Church of Christ in Congo. In 1807, the first Protestant missionary, British Presbyterian preacher Robert Morrison, arrived in China. However, the ruling Qing dynasty soon banned, quote, witches, wizards, and all superstitions, including the Christian religion, and ordered Chinese Christians to convert back to the folk religion or be enslaved. Following the British victory in the First Opium War of 1842, however, China was forced to begin the process of westernization. Protestant missionaries, primarily from the United States and Europe, soon began coming to China by the thousands. In China, these missionaries held sermons and passed out pamphlets about Protestantism, 
but on a fateful day in 1843, a pamphlet printed by American Congregationalist missionary Edwin Stevens, a native of Somerville, New Jersey, found its way into the hands of a poor Guangdong villager named Hong Shiquan. Born to parents of the Hakka ethnicity in 1814, Hong Xiaoquan aspired to become a scholar of the Qing dynasty from a young age. He attempted to pass the extremely difficult imperial examinations three times, but he failed each time. In 1843, he attempted the examinations for a fourth time. He first overheard Reverend Stevens in the waiting room of the exam building, and Stevens gave him a pamphlet. After taking the exam again, Hong failed for the fourth time. He then had a nervous breakdown and had hallucinations of visiting heaven and seeing who he believed to be his father and older brother. In one hallucination, his brother stated that humans had started to worship demons instead of God and presented Hong with a sword to slay these demons. After recovering from his nervous state, Hong began looking for answers in the pamphlet he had received from Reverend Stevens. After studying the Bible further with other Protestant missionaries, Hong concluded that, in the context of his hallucinations, his father was God, his older brother was Jesus, and most importantly, the demons he needed to slay were the Qing dynasty. In the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Hong saw himself as the Holy Spirit, or in his words, the Heavenly King. In 1844, Hong founded the God-Worshipping Society, a Protestant denomination supplemented with certain aspects of the Han folk religion. Hong took advantage of widespread dissatisfaction with the Qing dynasty during China's so-called Century of Humiliation, as well as the resentment held by the Hakka people against the ruling Manchu people. By 1850, the God-worshipping society had as many as 30,000 members. After local officials in Jinchan, Guangxi, began cracking down on the God-worshippers, Hong's forces successfully fought back. On January 11, 1851, Hong officially established the Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace, or Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, with himself as Heavenly King. The Taiping Rebellion had begun. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom began expanding rapidly from Guangxi, sacking hundreds of villages along the way. Within two years, Hong Shiquan's forces had reached Nanjing, nearly 800 miles from Jintian. For reference, that's like conquering the area between Dallas, Texas and Chicago, Illinois in less than two years. Nanjing was soon renamed to Tianjin and declared the heavenly capital of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. The predominantly Hakka god-worshippers slaughtered the entire Manchu population of the city, believing them to be demons of the Qing Dynasty. Approximately 40,000 Manchu men, women, and children were forced into enclosures and burned alive. The Manchu people were similarly executed in other areas captured by the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. In addition, Hong enforced his strict interpretation of the Bible onto subjects of the kingdom. 
The policies he enacted included converting Confucianist, Taoist, and Buddhist temples into churches, replacing the Chinese lunar calendar with the solar calendar created by Pope Gregory XIII, and banning men and women, including married couples and their children, from cohabitating. In spite of the gender separation, the god worshippers did have a very unique attitude towards women. Women were declared to be equal to men, frequently serving in high-ranking political and military positions, and the kingdom even banned the widespread Chinese practice of female foot-binding so that women would be physically able to perform manual labor. In addition, private property ownership was abolished within the kingdom in an attempt to create a utopian socialist economy. Later on, Chinese communist revolutionary Mao Zedong would cite Taiping as an inspiration for his views. At its peak, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom controlled over 180,000 square miles of land, making it easily larger than the state of California, and ruled over a population of 30 million. But unbeknownst to Hong, the days of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom were limited. By the mid-1850s, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom was beginning to fall apart. The god-worshippers were decimated during the failed invasion of Beijing between 1853 and 1855, and several of Hong Xiuquan's military advisors narrowly failed to overthrow him in 1856. In 1861, the Qing Dynasty appealed to Western nations for help with putting down the Taiping Rebellion. The United Kingdom and France entered the war on behalf of the Qing Dynasty, while the United States stayed out of the war, presumably because they were dealing with their own civil war at this point. Regardless of this, many American mercenaries joined the war in exchange for financial compensation. One of them, Frederick Townsend Ward, created the ever-victorious army, an extremely skilled unit of soldiers. Ward was killed in action in September of 1862 during the Battle of Sichi. Two months later, the ever-victorious army won a crucial victory against Taiping at the Battle of Shanghai. Qing's forces soon encircled Taiping's capital Tianjin, and Hong began to see the writing on the wall that his kingdom would soon fall. In April of 1864, Hong Xiuquan abdicated from his position of Heavenly King, given the position to his 14-year-old son Hong Tianguifu. The elder Hong soon fell ill after consuming wild mushrooms, which he had believed to be the biblical substance known as manna, and he died on June 1, 1864, at the age of 50. Just days later, on July 19, 1864, Qing, British, and French forces seized Tianjin, effectively bringing the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom to an end. Following the fall of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, Hong Tianguifu was captured and executed by slow slicing on November 18, 1864, at the age of 14. Hong Xiuquan's remains were cremated and blasted out of a cannon by the Qing dynasty so as to eternally punish him by ensuring that he would never have a final resting place. Although the kingdom had fallen, a small number of god worshippers continued to fight against the Qing dynasty until 1871, 
when the final holdouts were defeated. The Taiping Rebellion was followed by a massive, bloody retribution against the Hakka people. Similarly to how the god-worshippers slaughtered Manchu people, the Qing Dynasty killed as many as one million Hakka civilians in the aftermath of the war. In addition, Christianity, which was the basis for the god-worshipping society, was heavily stigmatized following the rebellion. The total number of deaths due to the Taiping Rebellion is disputed, but it is widely accepted that as many as 30 million people, even more than the death count of World War I, died due to the conflict. This would make the Taiping Rebellion the second deadliest war in history behind World War II, as well as the deadliest war in Chinese history and the deadliest civil war in history. However, several recent studies have attributed as many as 70 million deaths to the rebellion, which would make the Taiping Rebellion the deadliest war in history. A majority of these deaths were due to disease and famine, as well as the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom's policy of conscripting both men and women into the military. Roughly 90% of Taiping forces were either killed in action or defected to the Qing Dynasty. Although the god-worshipping society died out after the rebellion and Christianity became a fringe religion in China, Hong Xiaoquan did achieve one of his largest goals. He struck a crippling blow against the Qing dynasty. Along with Imperial China's other losses throughout the century of humiliation, the Taiping Rebellion exposed the ineptitude of the monarchy. Ultimately, this would culminate in the Xinhai Rebellion of 1911 which would forever end the monarchy of China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. This topic was certainly very impactful on the course of history, if you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and become a patron. And of course... I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.